Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry. This is Jason Gewurz, Vice President of the North Star Meetings Group Sports Division and the Executive Editor and Publisher of Sports Travel. And our guest on this episode is Joe Jacoby, the 1992 Olympic gold medalist in the sport of whitewater canoe slalom, the former CEO of USA Canoe Kayak, and a performance coach and author whose new book, Slalom, teaches us about life lessons learned over years of competing on whitewater and coaching elite athletes to get the best out of their performance. Joe is also an international traveler and resident who lives just steps away from the same venue in the mountains near Barcelona where he won his Olympic gold 30 years ago. But before we begin, this episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by IMEX America. Sports teaches us many skills which we can use across all areas of our life, resilience, leadership, and accountability to name a few. IMEX America, the show designed for event planners from around the world, is the place to supercharge your skill set, meet other event professionals, and connect with an international range of suppliers. IMEX America takes place October 11th through the 13th in Las Vegas. Entry is free, and it's a must-attend for thousands of event planners each year. Find out more at IMEXAmerica.com. And now, on to the conversation. There aren't many kids who have the opportunity to be exposed to the Olympic version of the sports of canoeing and kayaking, but Joe Jacoby was one of them. After learning the sport in a summer camp near the Washington, D.C. area where he grew up, Jacoby found himself on the path to elite competition. Years later, that led to international rankings for him and his partner, Scott Straussball, in the two-man version of whitewater canoe slalom. By the time the 1992 Olympic Summer Games came around in Barcelona, they were poised to take a serious run at the podium. That effort, which culminated in the first U.S. gold medal ever in canoe slalom, came after years of intense preparation and training. After competing, Jacoby went on to administration at the then national governing body of the sport, USA Canoe Kayak, which moved its headquarters to Oklahoma City after that destination began a major investment in paddle sports. Now he is back living near Barcelona as a performance coach and author whose latest book is called Slalom, Six River Classes About How to Confront Obstacles, Advance Amid Uncertainty, and Bring Focus to What Matters Most. In this conversation, we talked to Jacoby about his path to the Olympic Games, the triumph he had in Barcelona, and the lessons he learned from a career in a sport whose very nature lends itself to thinking differently when obstacles are thrown into our path. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Joe Jacoby, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Hey, Jason. It is great to be here with you. It's terrific to be with you, Joe. It's been a while since we've had a chance to catch up. You're many things. You're uh, an Olympic champion, of course, uh, sports executive, life coach, world traveler, all of these things. I, I got to know you during your time at USA Canoe Kayak years back, but we are talking today, Joe, and I'm, I'm interested in catching up with you. You have a, a terrific new book called Slalom, which takes a look at your sports experience, but also the interesting life lessons that come out of your particular expertise in the world of canoe slalom. And so I want to chat with you a little bit about the book, of course, and some of the themes you have in there, but also just a little bit about your athletic journey to get to that point. We haven't had the chance to have too many gold medalists here on the podcast, so it is always a treat to be in that kind of company, mostly because of the work that goes into something like that. I mean, the accomplishment is amazing and, of course, lasts a lifetime, but I think we all inherently know that to even get into that kind of conversation takes quite a bit of work, introspection, all of it. And what I've always found interesting about you, Joe, is in addition to uh, being such an accomplished athlete, you are you are definitely a thinker. 
and someone who always sees the big picture on things. So I'm, I'm excited about this conversation and just excited to catch up with you because it's, it's been a while. So a genuine welcome to the conversation. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And thanks. I uh, had the chance to read your book. Thank you for sharing that with me. We'll get into that here as thanks, well. Jason. So Joe, let me start here. I, I think when most kids get the chance to be exposed to a sport here in the US, at least we're talking you know, soccer, baseball, basketball, maybe something like swimming. But canoe slalom is not the typical path for most kids to get involved, particularly in an Olympic sport. So let's start here, Joe, just, you know, briefly at least, what were the circumstances that led you to even become aware of this sport and have the opportunity to participate? You bring up a really good point, Jason, because kids in the United States are not going to their PE teachers and checking out canoes and kayaks during recess <laughs> And, you know, it's, 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 it's hard, you know, it's in that the sport really requires like a lot of work to get going, to get started. You know, it involves parents, you know, and the whole family really, you know, where I, so I'm living, I'm talking to you right now from La Seo de in the Spanish state of Catalonia. I'm literally like 50 meters from the 1992 Olympic whitewater canoe course where my canoe partner and I won a gold medal at the Olympics 30 years ago. What's so interesting about our little canoe club here in La Seo de has a couple hundred members in it, mostly kids. Not one kid drives to the river. Everyone, no one is more than a 15 minute walk mm. from the 1992 Olympic whitewater course. So La Seo is a town of 12,000 people and no one is more than a 15 minute walk from the 1992 Olympic canoeing venue, which is great for canoeing. But I mean, it's also this beautiful park where people can just take a stroll. Kids can learn to ride a bike. People can read a book, have a picnic. It has all those you know, elements also, but for the sport of canoeing, uh, that it doesn't work like that in the United States. You need a family, you need a family that has a car, you know, it's like, (laughs) there's a lot of work that that gets involved, but I was very lucky because you asked about how I got started. I got started at a summer camp in the Washington DC area, a day camp. So it wasn't an overnight camp, but it was a camp that had, you know, a lot of camps had an affinity for open canoes, the big metal open canoes yeah. that are probably people think about when they think about paddling at summer camps. But this camp had kayaks. It was very, for the 1970s, that was really unique. And the camp, all the fiberglass boats were made on site at, at the camp. And the coolest thing is the family that owned the camp, their son, Jamie, won America's first ever Olympic medal, a bronze medal at the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich, Germany, which, you know, we're celebrating, we just got done celebrating the 50th anniversary of of that race at the World Championships in Augsburg, Germany a few weeks ago. And so that Jamie's bronze medal got a lot of people excited. My family had a connection to Jamie's family. My mom worked in a theater group with Jamie's father who kind of ran the community theater group. And Jamie's father was like, you know, said to my mom, it's like, Hey, your boys need to come to camp. And I I went to camp and, you know, I didn't even like canoeing when I first started. It was this really hard sport, uncomfortable, but I had a disposition to be pretty good at it. I was one of the first two kids in my group to learn how to do the Eskimo roll where you turn upside down Mm -hmm. and then roll right side back up. And you know, Jason, when you're 10, 11 years old and 
you're good at something, you know, that, that increases your enjoyment of it. And so I had never been the best or the first at anything I had ever done in my life. Like I loved sports, even at nine, 10, 11 years old, like I could name every player that played football for the Redskins, basketball for the Bullets and baseball for the Baltimore Orioles. But I think I wasn't that good at, at anything. I, I played everything. I just wasn't very good at it. I enjoyed it. But canoeing was something that I seemed to uh, really be interested in. And, and I had a little bit more talent and disposition to do well in that sport. Yeah, I'll say, I mean, I'll, I'll fast forward through quite a bit of your journey here, but obviously you had the talent. And once you started eventually competing in it, worked your way up, you know, into this national profile, met your your partner, Scott, who you eventually won gold with in, in Barcelona. But one of the things that's interesting, Joe, about your story, you talk about it a lot in your book is this notice of preparation and getting to that point. And I was uh, amazed. I, I don't know if I knew all this story myself before I read it, but the amount of preparation that went in by the time, you know, you were at the Olympics stage after working your way up the rankings nationally and internationally, knowing that you had a chance in those Olympic games, you uh, you write about it. I mean, you started going to the venue a year in advance and yeah. immersing yourself into it, which I thought was fascinating. That was a really special part of it. I was just starting a new coaching relationship with a client today and actually telling the story about how you know, our sport, even though the Americans were really, really good at, at the sport of whitewater canoe slalom, uh, the sport was anchored in Europe. So we would do these long trips living out of a duffel bag going from race to race. Not bad. Like, don't feel sorry. Like, it was nice. But you also, after a month, became a bit envious of the your competitors who lived here that could go home for a day or two in the middle of the week sleep in their bed, get their clothes washed and get a home cooked meal. And I remember arriving here in Laseo. I was 21 years old. We had been on the road for five or six weeks. I was really tired and worn out. We had done a full day's drive across France, arrive here into Catalonia and in, in the northern part of Spain. And I was exhausted. And I, it was one year before the 92 Olympics. We were here for a practice race. It was my first time in La Seudrige, the host city, and paddling on the course. And I just had this epiphany that a year from that moment, a year forward, I did not want to wake up as an American visitor in the Olympic Village. Like I wanted to wake up in the village feeling like I had a sense of connection, like I belonged here. And I don't just don't, I don't want to say like there was anything special about me. I, I was, it wasn't like I was the brightest light or anything like that. I just, something changed very quickly that things that used to be transactional, like going to a restaurant or uh, going to a bank or going to the grocery store became much more interactive and engaging. Like I was interacting with a neighbor or a friend, you know, when I did those activities and I got to tell you, as that played out over the next year, we spent 100 days here in La Seudrige practicing, which was great for learning the water. But what was really good is that we were becoming like a part of the culture here. So when we left the village on the morning of the Olympic race, like we felt like we had already, I, I felt like, you know, that box had been checked. Then to win the Olympics, like that just deepened everything like times a thousand. But I think that's a really special part of it. And that connection and that feeling of that sense of belonging is really important. And I'm, of course, that's tied to why I'm here today. Not the winning part, but the people part of it. Like, that's what brought me back. Like, I don't spend any time thinking about the Olympics today. 
I spend time thinking about ways to be healthy, uh, ways to enjoy my life, the relationships that, that I have here, learning and speaking, Catalan. Those are the kind of things that matter to me. Like I have all these new challenges in front of me. Like, I don't have time to like sit around and like dwell on like this good race we had 30 years ago. I, I love just waking up every morning and I hear this language being spoken outside my door and it just, my brain has to kind of kick in and say, oh yeah, this is what you've signed up for. And I love that sense of learning and, and purpose and growth because the flip side of it is that you can wake up in the same bed every morning where you're comfortable and you get used to it and you just don't realize, it's like you don't know what you don't know. It's very easy just to get very comfortable with your routine and your surroundings and, and realize that you, maybe you're not challenging yourself or you're not learning or growing as maybe you might want to. Right. And just to be clear, for those who are listening, you this is permanent home for you now. You are an American. Hey, you, hey, you hey. So funny thing, I'm five years into this experience. I'm in the process of my next residency application, which I'm doing right now is for permanent residency here. And what I'm about to say next is not planned or unplanned. I, I haven't been to the U.S. in more than three years. And I love being here. Like it's like I've made a lot of positive changes in in my life. I'm learning so much. I'm in a relationship here with someone I, I care about so much. Some you know, a, a Catalan woman that has been just awesome. And yeah, I'm just I am so grateful for this experience. Like I'm not going anywhere. Like this is a, this is a really great experience. I, but I do wake up every morning knowing it's like it's not like surviving here, but sort of existing here requires like, I need to do something, you know, I need to like, extend. I need to extend myself. Like it's not, the language isn't going to come to me. The culture is not going to come to me. You know, I've got to go out and meet, meet those things. You're also like a the living embodiment of destination marketing. <laughs> I think when, when cities aim to host events in the back of their mind, I'm like, maybe people will like it enough here to want to come and live. And, well, uh, here's a situation where it actually what, worked out. What is funny, I always say this and I, I, as a preface in my coaching, you know, just today, again, in that same coaching, uh, that, that intake session that I was doing with a client, I always say that I will talk about my observations about life in the Catalan Pyrenees, not as something I think you should do. Like I'm not advocating for anyone to like sell their things and simplify and do less and slow down and leave the U.S. How having said that, I know for a fact that that perspective makes a really nice lens for reflection for whatever it is that you're thinking about doing. If you want to, you know, increase sales or if you want to increase the way your team works together or efficiency or you want to reduce friction that exists, you know, in your organization, there are certainly things about my, you know, my observations in the life that I live here that will be interesting to look at through that lens that will be helpful to anyone that, you know, wants to perform a little bit better in their life or in their work. You're listening to the Sports Travel Podcast. This episode is being sponsored by IMEX America. Sports teaches us many skills which we can use across all areas of our life. Resilience, leadership, and accountability, to name a few. 
IMAX America, the show designed for event planners from around the world, is the place to supercharge your skill set, meet other event professionals, and connect with an international range of suppliers. IMAX America takes place October 11th through the 13th in Las Vegas. Entry is free, and it's a must-attend for thousands of event planners each year. Find out more at IMAXAmerica.com. And now, back to the episode. Excellent. Well, Joe, I want to ask you about the book, but before we get to a, a few of those topics, let me just ask you about another place where I know you have lived in the past. That's where I first came across you. I, I think you were living there. You And you talk about it a bit in your book in a chapter that I think has a terrific name called The Beauty of Unlikely. And we are talking about Oklahoma City, which is a terrific destination. We are bringing our, our team's conference and expo there in October, in part because, as you know well, it has a number of years back, almost overnight, uh, become a center for paddle sports here in the U.S. But uh, you have this terrific story in there, Joe, that I think is sort of the embodiment of what we see in cities across the country, like Oklahoma City. But there are other examples that when you get to a destination, it can be surprising sometimes or not what you expected. And when you show up, you have this great story about one of the first conversations you were having with someone on a boat uh, on the river and, and it turned out to be the mayor of Oklahoma City, which you didn't even know until you were in on it. I was just curious to get your observations real quick of of that destination and, and what your experience well, was like there. I, I, I love the chapter name, The Beauty of Unlikely. I, When I was the chief executive officer of USA Canoe Kayak, I'd be on a flight. Everyone listening to this podcast can relate to being on the flight. Remember what that was like? And, uh, you know, you have that, well, what do you do? What do you do? Okay. So you say, I'm the chief executive officer of USA Canoe Kayak. It's the national governing body for Olympic, Paralympic canoeing, you know. And they just say, oh, you must be based in Asheville, North Carolina, or Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Boulder, Colorado. And it's like Oklahoma City. And so, yeah, people have that feeling like, what, how could that possibly be? And, you know, so it isn't unlikely, but what really jumps out to me that still I, I have a little bit of time removed from Oklahoma, but it gets me really excited about the, you know, what you've come to see about Oklahoma, what your organization's come to see, what the Olympic movement, Paralympic movement has come to see, the international paddling community, what businesses have come to see. It's humility. No one is pounding their chest, thumping their chest in Oklahoma City. It's not that. It's not that kind of place. You know. It. I think people. Rec- a lot of people who live there, they come from very humble beginnings. You know. It, it's not a very old state. Uh, a lot of people have agricultural connections. You know. Come, maybe come from large farming families. You know, even the architect that designed the Oklahoma City Boathouse District, you know, he, he came from a farming family in either northern Oklahoma or mm-hmm. Kansas, Grand Elliott. And yeah, there's a lot of that. So you have a humility and and there's still a little bit of the uh, this from people there that like really people think we're big, you know, this is like a pretty, you know, good model or something. And you know, we offer something that people would really like. Like, I think it's, it's that humility is, is really special. And I think it's, it's really worth it embracing. And yeah, I think people that come from very fast moving places like your Los Angeles and your Boston's and your New York's and Atlanta's, they, they come to Oklahoma city and you just never know unless you put your feet on the ground there and you start to talk to people and you kind of look around at what's been done and where it's going. And that humility is just, I just think is an, is an incredible element that's deeply woven into the fabric of, of that culture. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and it's actually not a terrible segue, Joe, into talking a little bit about the themes that you have in in your book that you've got out now. This book, as I said, called Slalom. You've divided it into six river classes. Uh, what I find interesting, Joe, is your sports, canoe slalom specifically, You, by its nature, you're dealing with... Uh, uncontrollable forces right. of nature, you know, in a way that a lot of other sports aren't, uh, that might just be a stick and ball sport. Um, uh, so that inherently to me makes it interesting. And you, you talk about it a lot and there are sort of these uh, interesting life lessons that, that can apply to anyone based on your experience in this very specific sport, uh, lessons of obstacles in your way, these sort yeah. of inherent things, you know, that are in your sport that interestingly have these bigger picture connotations to it. So I want to ask you a little bit about some of that. You know, there's there's a theme in here, it seemed to me, Joe, of this notion of focusing on things you can control and and right. things you can't, which is inherent in your sport, that also are some interesting life lessons as well. I, I let's just kind of start there, this notion of focusing on what yes. you can control and and not sticking to a, a necessarily to the expected course of action. There's there's something there on a on a right. bigger level that goes beyond just competing. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly it, Jason, is that what I think happens is that when we, I always say, if you imagine a scale and on one end of the scale, you have complete control. And on the other end of the scale, you have no control. If I paint that picture for people, the first thing you're going to think of is like, oh, I want to be on one side of that scale and not the other. And I think labeling one side is good and one side is not good is, is a bad idea. Because what happens in the river is that sometimes you're just in a bad position and you have to really do the work from there. And the other thing is, is that when you label it, yeah, that's fine when you're on the good side, but it just becomes forced. The reality is we're going through this journey and there's a human brain that accompanies us. So there's no way it's going to be good all the time. So what I, if we can just kind of summon the awareness to sort of notice when we are beyond our control, things are just outside of our, our control and just say, that's it. That's what it is. And you notice it, you accept it. And then it's like, you can work with it from there. I can't tell you how many times I've coached an athlete that maybe wasn't super confident that like they were going to have like a winning run. But instead of like saying, I got to get into a good mindset, they just accepted the mindset where they were and they realized, but yeah, I've trained my body. I've done all the work. Like it really doesn't change anything. It's just my brain is just like not as happy about it all as it could be. No problem. And so I think that's the idea about the scale is just taking the time to notice where you are on the scale and just say, once you realize that, then you can make choices that support that. If I wake up in the morning and I'm anxious or I'm confrontational, or maybe my ego is really pushing forward and like, I need to be recognized for something. None of those things really matter, except that I'm aware of it. And once I'm aware of it, I can make different kinds of choices. Once I notice where I am on the scale without having to label anything as good or bad. And I think that is one of the biggest lessons the river has taught me. I like the notion that, that you talk about there as well. And this goes to athlete preparation, certainly, but and specifically in your sport, this notion of uh, changing your strategy when you need to and, and not being afraid to do that. Because I think your sport in particular, you're in all these wildly different environments. You know, every course that you're in, depending on where you are in the world, and they offer different yeah. challenges. And, uh, and I would imagine even at that level, you know, you're going in with a particular mindset that uh, that may have to shift. And there's some lessons there beyond, uh, again, just athletic performance 
performance that, that I found really interesting. Uh, well, I, I think one of the, some of the feedback I've got, you mentioned there are these six river clashes. It's a short book, you know, it, it's, it's not a long book, yeah. but w- one of the river classes is called the art of course correction. So what happens when you're in a boat or in life, we're sort of getting pushed around a little bit by, by the current and, you know, sometimes your straight ahead speed, your agility, all your physical attributes aren't, aren't nearly as important as to how well you correct mistakes. So a lot of times when I show a video of our Olympic run, you know, our 1992 Olympic gold medal winning run, okay, the first time people see it, it's like they're kind of enamored with the idea that someone won a gold medal and they see the moment. Once I start to actually give people a little primer about the sport, and then I say, now let's look at the mistakes we made and the mistakes we corrected. Someone who's never had any formal training in the sport can very quickly pick out five big mistakes that we corrected in the course of our Olympic run. And I use that as sort of saying, we were not the biggest, we were not the strongest, we were not the fastest. What The only thing you'll ever hear me say between now and the day I die about our Olympic performance is that we, we did one of two things better than our competition. One, we corrected mistakes better than our competition. Or two, we anticipated mistakes before they happened better than our competition. Not very sexy, but this isn't what just got us down like a good run on the course. It actually got us to the top step of the Olympic podium at the Olympic Games. And, you know, so I, I think it, it's it's really interesting. And, you know, there is something about that idea that, you know, we're always looking about just getting bigger and faster and stronger. But if you're offline and you're not really course correcting, you, you don't stand a chance. You don't stand a chance against someone like us. You yeah. know, that's just... Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that was some of the most interesting stuff in there, Joe, this notion of correcting small mistakes, you know, to prevent bigger mistakes down the road. I, w- I would imagine your sport in particular, once you get down a certain path, those small mistakes add up and become difficult. To it, it, but, and yet like there's so much noise about going big and taking risks and this, these pressures from Olympic committees to win medals and do all these things. And as athletes, like you have to find this way to sort of create a better space, you know, for, for doing the work. And the funny thing is, is like the river, this really wild place is like giving you choices, giving you options. It's not saying just because the river is throwing you into a state of disruption and uncertainty doesn't mean that you have to like succumb and like turn yourself into like a crazy machine. There's a very steady way of kind of going about this kind of work, but you know, it, it does take practice. And the, the amazing thing is it, it's 100% app- applicable to everything that we, that we do in our lives. You know, there is a different way. And by the way, like I am not, I'm not advocating for not taking risks for not like doing something really big. I just like to sort of understand when someone makes a big leap or really takes a big jump, like I'm looking hard at like what the platform looks like that they're leaping off of. If there's nothing there, that's not giving me a lot of confidence. I'm not saying it won't work. I'm just saying statistically, I just don't really trust like it has a good chance of, of working out. Whereas like if there's a pretty good body of work and consistency and some really, you know, a lot of pillars of performance coming together and they take a big leap, that can be really exciting. That can be really exciting, actually. And and so I, I look for that as well. Yeah. And another thing I just wanted to bring up because uh, it kind of spoke to me as well. 
again, inherent to your sport, but just something that can expand beyond sports. You have this uh, section there called the rock paradox, this notion of your know, rocks that are obstructing the the flow of something. And you look at that as, as an obstacle. But in your sport, it's it's just sort of directing where you're going. It's not it. necessarily viewed as an obstacle. It's just something to uh, kind of work around. There's something really interesting there. So this well. is not just some terminology that sounds nice. I sort of want to speak a little bit, even from like more science and hydrology sort of standpoint about the river and about life. So what happens with a rock is that, you know, you, you have this moving water that you have this rushing river and the rock is like this stable object. Like that's what we sort of see as the obstacle. And a lot of people sort of resist obstacles. There's a lot of things that have to do with facing your resistance that, you know, I don't want to do it. And so what happens is, is that in the nature of avoiding the rocks, what do we do? We end up way on the sides of the river where the river, there's not much water in the river. Like your boat is like bouncing over these shallow rocks and the shoals. And it's just a crappy way to run the river. And it's a crappy way to live life. And the funny thing is about directing yourself more towards the rock is that not only is the majority of the river current like going in that direction, what happens when a water flows up on a rock is that the, the energy goes up on the rock and it's kind of bubbly and, and it's it's uncertain water, but eventually it only, the water is, is moving energy. So it only knows how to do one thing, which is to release. And when it releases, it releases quite fast next to the rock. So if my goal is to align myself with the most energy out there that doesn't belong to me, it belongs to the river, confronting the obstacle is the way to go. And on the backside of that obstacle is a calm spot of water called an eddy where you can actually rest or change course, change directions. And so like you pointed out, the rock isn't the obstacle. All it is, is a redirect of the river current. And by avoiding it and avoiding the, the obstacles in your life and in your business and in your work, you're operating your business from a crappy place. You're, you're kind of just getting floating over these shallow shoals and over bump, bumping over rocks. It's just, it's just not a way to go. But it's also not easy to kind of confront a stationary object in the middle of a river. I, I, I get that, but it's very counterintuitive. Counterintuitive is, is a big word in the book like that counterintuitive mm -hmm. muscle is a huge huge part of of, of being successful in, in navigating uncertainty yeah we didn't really uh i kind of glossed over it early on joe but i mean some of what brought you to this place and even writing a book like this is you've transit i mean you have a successful coaching career for for people both in their careers and, the, and their life and uh, how much of that interest came just from this experience, like you're describing here, I mean, there, there's some fantastic themes, of course, with what a river can mean, you know, for your own life journey, but you've, you've sort of turned this into an interesting career yeah. in itself <laughs> at this point, just based on these observations you've yeah, had. I, you know, I, I know that my name is on the book as the author, you know, I, but I really do feel that a big part of this book is, is giving voice to the water. It's giving voice to lessons that the river has taught me over the years. And maybe there were times that I wasn't ready to kind of hear the lesson or understand it. By the way, the river, like I said, it doesn't care. It's just moving energy. But once you put yourself in the position of like trying to listen to it and trying to understand like what's happening and how it models life, it is just unbelievably helpful. 
The other part of all this, though, the coaching and the writing is that, you know, we did mention that I was the chief executive officer for USA Canoe Kayak for five years. First two and a half, three years were really hard for me. Like I didn't do the best job. Well, it wasn't that I didn't do good work. I just didn't take, I was really good at taking care of others, but not very good at taking care of myself. Jason, I weighed 50 pounds more than, than I do today, you know, 50 pounds. And, you know, I just let a lot of things go. There was sort of this halfway point into my time at USA Canoe Kayak that was just a deep, deep hole. And I'm really glad I, I, I number one, I didn't quit. Number two, that I didn't get fired, which I almost did. And, um, and it gave me a chance to sort of figure out how to work out of it. I did it without coaching, but that's kind of what led me to say that I think supporting America's Olympic Paralympic canoeing athletes is a good thing. But the things I was learning from getting myself out of that rut, transferring some of the ideas of high performance athletes, canoeing athletes, and learning about what other people are doing that was like, I, I think coaching is is really kind of where I want to be and, and what I want to do. And I am very grateful. And, and it's all sort of also supported by living in the Pyrenees Mountains in Catalonia. And, and you know, work is a part of what I do, but it's not, it is not all. It is not nearly all of what I do. It's just one small part of it. And I, I feel very blessed. Well, it seems like a perfect way to uh, to wrap up this conversation, Joe, we could obviously talk for, for a long time, but for those who are interested in your book, how can they get it? Is it where it is? is it, it is uh, Amazon. Amazon, if you just search okay. Slalom or Joe Jacoby, it'll come up. It has a beautiful blue cover to it that I'm so happy was designed here in Catalonia. And, you know, it's fun to have to have done the project and work with people over here on the project and something. Yeah, it's, I like sharing that part of it. I, I'm very hopeful that this isn't the only book that I'll write. I would like to write more about where I live and the people and the culture that I'm, I'm living among today. I think that would be interesting to write about. Well, yeah, your story is terrific, Joe. Uh, we've always been big admirers of yours from here. And it's uh, just great to see everything coming together and, and that you are literally steps away um, from one of your favorite places. Uh, in the world along the river. It's uh, it's incredible as well. So we, we definitely need to stay in touch and do this a little more often as we proceed along. But, you know, congratulations to you, Joe, for everything working out and for, for the book and everywhere that your journey has taken you as well. It's been thanks. And hey, everyone listening that's headed to Oklahoma City for teams, man, oh, man, I'm, I'm envious. And I hope you have a good time. Please, please, please check out the Boathouse District while you're there. I'm sure you guys have that covered. But um, a lot of big canoeing events coming to Oklahoma City in, in the coming years. And uh, this would be some exciting things to, to follow in the canoeing in Oklahoma City world coming too. Agreed. We're excited to be there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Joe. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features regularly updated breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewurz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.